Hi there, this is your Value Through Vulnerability host, Gary Turner. Today, it was an absolute pleasure to welcome Amy Edmondson, who is Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School, onto the podcast. I was really, really fascinated to speak with Amy today, as she's done a lot of work over the years with a topic that's particularly close to my heart, which is around psychological safety. This is a term, this is a, an area of practice that I've only come into contact with over the last 12 to 18 months. But it's something that intuitively I felt did have, a, have some sort of relevance to a big passion area of mine, which is around vulnerability. What I found was Amy's humility, her passion, her energy was all really, really infectious. And I found her a super inspiring person to speak with. I really enjoyed where the conversation went. Um, it's a very free-flowing free conversation, talking about things such as how do we bring our full self? What does that mean to Amy herself? What is her definition of vulnerability? And indeed, how can we all try and show up um, in a more vulnerable way such that it's better for everybody that we work with and to those people that we serve. I got so much out of this conversation personally and I'm absolutely convinced that there'll be a number of takeaways and aha moments for those people that listen. So please do enjoy the podcast. Do please reach out to Amy on any of the contact details that you'll find in the show notes. And as always, if you find this podcast interesting, we're always grateful to receive your feedback via the iTunes app. And again, this podcast is Value Through Vulnerability. Thank you. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability, a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And today I'm really grateful to welcome Amy Edmondson, a Harvard professor, onto the podcast. Hello, Amy. Hi, Gary. Nice to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, I'm super excited, a little bit fanboy right now to be talking to you. <laughs> so I will keep my composure. Um, <laughs> oh, academics don't get that very often. So, I'm, you know, don't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, look, as we get going, would you mind for any listeners that may not know you or your work, just a bit of a brief introduction. Who is Amy Edmondson? What do you, you know, what do you do for work? And what, do you, what are you passionate about? course yeah so I'm uh, I I'm a professor I'm a management professor and I have been doing research and teaching for quarter of a century um, and I am I am I am deeply passionate about the workplace more specifically making helping to make the workplace an environment where people can feel that they are able to bring their full self to work, that they can make a contribution to something larger than themselves, uh, and that they can they they can feel a sense of um, of being respected and um, and and connected uh, to others. And I think for some people that might sound like, oh, okay, no big deal. And for others that might sound like a pipe dream. So, I, I you know I've spent um, you know the last couple of decades studying um, people at work, generally people who are interdependent with each other to get challenging work done, and, and finding that workplaces really differ. You know, that there's, there's some places that are absolutely, they've created an environment that, that works, uh, and for learning, for growth, for, 
for full participation and others that haven't and and that's what i care about and that's what i that's what i what i do and, and try to influence yeah, it's really powerful uh, you, you know i'm a big proponent myself with the whole sort of bring your whole self to work but i think sometimes it can seem back to your point about pipe dream i yes. think it can, it can yeah. seem such yeah. a big distance from where people are at and where they're trying to get to to live, bring that full self what is what, what are some of those initial barriers for you before we get into more about your book i'm really interested to explore that but what are some of those initial barriers do you see currently well i mean it may all it may in part the, i think the first barrier might be or a barrier might be what does that mean to bring your full self to work now depending on what the work is and what the workplace is like that may not mean i need to know everything about you personally I need to know about your your family or your childhood or anything you know that that to me that might be relevant in some places maybe places that are devoted to therapeutic work or something but but what i really mean by bring your full self to work is that ability to contribute what i have to contribute to the shared enterprise more specifically can i speak up can i offer my ideas can i raise my hand when i'm not sure what to do can i um, uh, you know, can I point to things that aren't working, to problems, to mistakes, to failures? And, and I want people to be able to do that because, not just because I think it is a more enriching and ennobling way to be and to be at work, but because I think organizations today depend upon that. You know, when people are not, when they hold back, you know, when they stay silent, when they should have spoken up, um, not only are, does that not feel good to them, it actually can create harm and risk for others and for the organization. It's really interesting for me. One of the things I always find astounding, um, Amy, are these Gallup engagement stats for sort of 20, maybe in 30 years now, stubbornly stuck at one in three being fully engaged is, so, you know, what, I'd like to actually touch a little bit on your book now, actually. So the yeah. fearless organization, which I've had quite a delve into already, I must say. And what you're speaking to, there's this one, there's a note I took specifically, which I found fascinating. Just to quote it, it said, employees spend 50% more time collaborating now than they did 20 years ago. That's yeah. such a stark difference, isn't it? It really is. And, because, and, and if, you, if you stop, let's just take that as, a fact, because that has been documented. And now, stop to contemplate what that means. And I don't think we, most managers have done enough to contemplate what that means. Because if people are that much more likely to be working with and interdependent with others for the quality of the outcomes that, that customers depend upon, um, that calls for a very different style of working than the old-fashioned top-down command and control style where ultimately maybe that wasn't fun but it could get the job done because right it could get the job done because the work was sufficiently independently accomplished you did your part i did my part and it all added up to products and services but when in today's world the products and services that we create are far more likely to require us to talk to each other in a back and forth interdependent way um, we better feel able to bring our full selves to that task, right? I better, I should not be, if one, you know, if I am consumed with making sure I look good, and I don't mean consciously, I mean, I think most of us are not consciously thinking 
oh, I'm trying to preserve my image or save face or make sure I look good in front of the boss or in front of my colleague. No, we, we don't think about it because we're skilled at it. We just do it naturally. And one of the ways we do it naturally is by holding back. But anyway, if, if I'm not, so if I'm not, if, if managers are not going out of their way to create an environment where people are less consumed with looking good and more consumed with teaming up to get the job done, then they and their organizations are at risk. Hmm. How does this, because I'm, I'm, I'm sensing already, and this is for anyone that's listening or follows me already, you know, psychological safety is a massive, massive part of everything I talk about generally. So thank you for your work. I, I really mean that. It's a huge, thank huge you. proponent for me. So how much, what you're speaking to me there is this safety element. You know, how can someone actually be brave enough, vulnerable enough to say, I've seen something, someone's going to get injured, someone's going right. to, you know, it could be quite serious sometimes and people just turn a blind eye, yeah? Of course. And so here's the, I like to think about this as a kind of um, very fundamental asymmetry. So let's say if I see something that I'm 100% confident is a problem or an opportunity, and I'm, you know, 99% confident that other people will react favorably you know i'm not i don't hesitate at all i just say watch out right you're you know <laughs> that ladder is about to fall it, it's it's not a, that's not that's not challenging where what what happens is though for things that are not in that highly confident realm i'm highly confident that it's going to happen i'm highly confident that it's going to be helpful to speak up about it our tendency is to hold back right? we, we nobody wakes up in the morning to go to work today to look incompetent. You know, I, I, I just can't wait to go to work to be incompetent and intrusive and negative, you know, I mean, I, which means I will generally, so here's the asymmetry. The asymmetry is if I speak up in this moment about something that for me is tentative, it might be a good idea, it might be a good point, it might make me look bad, it might not, um, who gains if I speak up? Well, we do, like the organization does or the customer does or the colleagues do. Um, and how confident am I that that gain will, will occur? Well, like, you know, 50-50, I don't know, not, not 100%. And when will that gain occur? Well, sometime in the future, you know, when that better product is launched or that patient is helped or whatever it is. It's not this second. Now, on the flip side, if I remain silent, who gains? I do. And how confident can I be in that game? A hundred percent, right? You know, I've stayed safe for another second, right? And, and, and when? Immediately, right? So, so think about that asymmetry. One is collective gain, not very confident and in the future. The other is immediate selfish gain right now. So it becomes so obvious why people hold back, but we don't notice them holding back. We can't see that an act of silence is an act of holding back. It just looks like an act of silence. It could be you had nothing to say, nothing going on in your head. So um, that fundamental asymmetry means that we need to go out of our way to engage people. We need to go out of our way to get people to recognize that in fact, their voice is welcome, their voice is appreciated, that vulnerability is rewarded and necessary. And you know, it's, nobody wants to be vulnerable. But vulnerability is mission critical in a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. Right? The, the new term VUCA that people are uh, 
appreciating more and more. So if you live in a VUCA world and you're not vulnerable, then not willing to be vulnerable, then you're at risk because we're all vulnerable. The only question is, are we willing to own it? Oh, that's powerful. Are we willing to own it? I love it. Right. Questions for everybody listening. Are we prepared to own our vulnerability? I love that. And I think it's particularly poignant for me today because today as we record this is 19th of uh, November and it's International Men's Day. And I just find it, and again, this is not men bashing at all. I am one of them. But I think it's very hard for us in particular. And the, you know, the mental health stats, Amy, play this out. You know, men are three times more likely to commit suicide by holding in and not letting others know how they're feeling. Is this, yeah. does this show up in your research as well at all? Um, Absolutely. And I, you know, and I think since most organizations are, are still run by men and most organizations, you know, the higher you go, the more likely uh, it is that you're seeing mostly men uh, in, in positions of responsibility and authority. Um, it, it's really all the more important that this message gets across, you know, that, that because men, uh, if you're unwilling to, be vulnerable yourselves, um, you're likely not going to be tuned in to the human reality around you that other people might be feeling vulnerable and therefore unable or unwilling to speak up, you know, unwilling to ask for help when they're in over their head, um, which is not so much something that will, you know, immediately benefit them, but will benefit the customer or their colleagues or their patients, depending on, on the kind of workplace. So um, because nobody likes to be vulnerable, we all have to be willing to take it on, right? to take on that need to be vulnerable so that collectively we can be safe, which sounds kind of paradoxical, but it's, it's honestly true. That's really, it's really interesting because I speak a lot from the heart around this stuff. I don't, I'm not as uh, clever as you guys over there with your research base. So it's nice to know, but genuinely, it's nice to be talking to you and having an alignment in what we both see, but almost from a pure, like, I'm much more emotional day-to-day work-based versus the research. And it's, it seems to be bearing out, Amy. Well, I mean, it, it, if you think about it, I think both from personal experience and from the social psychology research, human beings are self-protection machines. You know, we, we uh, by the time you're in, in uh, elementary school, you have found ways to to stay safe, right? To protect yourself from scorn um, or, or, you know, being made fun of. And it, it's, not, it's something that's so, um, so highly skilled after a while, we don't even notice ourselves doing it. And in some sense, um, the self-protection job gets done, right? We, we're, most of us are pretty good at, at self-protection. But in so doing, we're losing the bigger prize. You know, we're losing that larger opportunity to make a difference, to be a part of something larger than ourselves, to, you know, to be um, vulnerable enough to kind of really team up with other people and do far more exciting things than stay safe. That's good. Just, if we could just segue a little bit into your books. You've got a new book out, The Fearless Organization, which, as I say, is a very, very good read. Thank you for that. Where was the inspiration for you? For that book, where did that come from? Out of interest. Well, there's two ways to think about that inspiration. One is where did the inspiration for this line of research come from, which I can talk about, and then the other is why write this book and why write it now. And so maybe if I take them both, the first one, I stumbled into this um, 
concept and, and, and phenomenon of psychological safety and just what a big difference it can make in people's willingness to engage in learning behavior and then to perform well, especially in, in interdependent or team-based settings, quite by accident, right? It was, I was looking for something else. I was looking, and I describe this in the book in some detail in this section called Discovery by Mistake. I was looking to show that better teams made fewer mistakes. In, and it was, I was studying this in the healthcare setting. And in, instead what I found was it looked like, according to a well-validated survey measure of, of teamwork and team effectiveness, that better teams were making more mistakes. In other words, they, they, they at least were reporting and recording more mistakes and they were more willing and able to talk about them. And it's, I started to think, wait a minute, maybe they don't make more mistakes. Maybe they are more vulnerable and more willing to talk about them. So um, it took quite a bit of additional work and research to, to do, uh, to, to, to create a plausible case that that interpretation was right. But I think I, I think ultimately that's a pretty, the case is well made. So I'd, it wasn't what I was looking for. I was interested in learning, of course, but I had never thought about psychological safety uh, before. And so um, I then found some robust ways to measure it through a survey measure and, and, and some other things, but that's the most popular. And, and then went out trying to find in other industry settings, you know, the, whether this construct really existed, whether it varied, and whether it predicted learning behavior, and indeed whether it explained performance differences in otherwise similarly resourced and composed teams and projects. And indeed it did. So that became a kind of 20, uh, 25 year journey. And now many people other, other than I have done good research with this measure and, and found that it explains lots of differences in performance everywhere from K-12 education to manufacturing, you know, healthcare, science and, 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 and more. So that was the, you know, that, that was sort of how I stumbled into it by accident and just kept pursuing this topic. Why I was motivated to write the book was in part uh, because the people suddenly, you know, after 20 years of my doing research on this, were talking about it in, in the real world. It was, it was getting attention in the blogosphere. It was in mainstream management. Um, books and articles and, and uh, blogs. And, and that was in part because Google did a study, a very well publicized and very impressive study, trying to explain differences in performance between teams at Google. And to make their long story short, they, they discovered that psychological safety was the big factor, that, that that explained just so much of the variance as to make the rest almost unimportant. So that led to a big article in the New York Times, lovely article and a book um, written by Charles Duhigg. And so then all of a sudden people were talking about it. And, and so, and in fact, I would see online, I would see um, Google's idea of psychological safety. So then I thought maybe it was time to write the book. <laughs> Seems a fair point. <laughs> yeah. And thank you, Google, right? Because that's just been remarkable. Um, it's, it's generated so much interest and I don't, by that, I don't mean interest in my work. I mean, interest in the kind of workplace that where really high quality work gets done in a VUCA world. It's really interesting because so, so listening to you talk about this passion of yours for, you know, a couple of decades, Amy, around this area, and yes. only recently for it to become mainstream, inverted commas, it's really yeah. interesting. 
yeah. because th th there seems to be this disconnect at times, doesn't there, between doing the acad academic research and people oh, yeah. actually living it out? It's quite... Uh, big, yeah, big disconnect. And the, the irony of that is, at least in the kind of research I do, I'm not someone like a, sci a biological scientist who's toiling away in the lab and discovering, you know, some gene that then can be put into medicines, but that, that necessarily takes a while. And that initial work is quite cut off from the real world. But in contrast, the kind of research I do is where, in fact, practice leads theory. Right? Because what I do is I go into companies. I talk to people. And I observe people. And I try to figure out what's going on. And so whenever, if I ever learn something, it's only because someone very thoughtful and skillful in a real company has showed me something. Right? So... I don't want to oversimplify it, but sometimes all I'm doing, in addition to measuring it and running some statistics on things, is bringing to the world the good practices that are already out there and hoping that they then can spread. Mm. Right? I don't invent anything, right? I don't do any basic thing in the lab. I just say, huh, who's good? And then if I find someone, you know, you find people in organizations who are good, you bring them to the world. I love it. And because you know, it was interesting for me. <laughs> you're, you're an exceptionally good networker. And who talks about academics being great networkers? It's not a common conversation, is it? <laughs> I'm, not sure. I'm not sure I'm a good networker, but I, I have been, um, I have a very broad network. It's true. I mean, because I've lived many lives. You know, I, I've been in different industries and roles. So I often think that some of the people I know and know well, would never have met each other in a million years. Oh, I love that. Um, let's come back to part of your, the work in your, your book, your most recent book, Fearless Organization, where you talk about Eli Lilly, actually, because they're actually one of my customers in my other world. In, um, in, we actually supply them with some chemicals, interestingly. But what I loved, you, you referenced their failure parties around right. intelligent failures. Would you mind explaining that a bit for the listeners, just to sort of ah, give that some context? I don't mind at all. So... That was a, um, a, a, the chief scientific officer a number of years ago instituted this as a ritual, as a routine, the failure party. So first of all, um, it's, it's, it's within R&D, right? Now, I'm not saying it has to be. I think other companies have done similar things. But for now, we're in the context of, of research and development. So um, a failure party is a ritual that we have when... Um, a substantial failure has occurred, let's say a series of scientific experiments that didn't produce the results um, that we had hypothesized and hoped for, or a clinical trial that we hoped would show efficacy in a, on a treatment, but didn't, right? So both of those qualify in my lexicon as intelligent failures, because we had done deep thought, we had hypotheses that were grounded in prior experience and research, and we made a solid prediction about what we thought would happen. And then we, there's nothing you can do at that point except try it. And then you try it and lo and behold, you're wrong, right? So it's a failure and make no mistake, nobody's happy about it. And yet we have to train ourselves to celebrate it because Otherwise, we won't be taking smart risks. Otherwise, people will just take safe bets. You know, they'll do the experiments that they know with near certainty will work out. Um, 
that's fine. That's nice to have all those experiments always work out, but it's not the way you learn anything new. It's not the way you innovate. It's not the way you come up with new life-saving medications. So I think what uh, this leader recognized was the need to keep reinforcing that message that we want you um, taking risks, intellectual risks, scientific risks, so that we can learn fast. And um, having a, you know, having a party and it's not champagne, right? It's going to be pizza and beer or something, but it's, it's a nice recognition. Yeah. Great try. Number two, um, I think it's a brilliant idea because when people show up at the party and they will free beer, free, free pizza, um, then they talk and they talk about what happened, which pragmatically decreases the chances to near zero that someone else will do the same thing, right? Because an intelligent failure the second time is no longer intelligent. It's now preventable. And then I think the third thing that a, a ritual like that does at Eli Lilly and elsewhere is it, when people know that this is part of how we do things, we, they're more willing to call a failure a failure in a timely way. They're less likely to keep throwing good money after bad, you know, and when we throw good money after bad, we are failing to reinvest those resources, whether they're people's time or, or, or dollars in, you know, new experiments and new trials. So, so I think for all three reasons, you know, creating the culture, spreading the news and encouraging timely uh, reporting of failure, it's just a, a, a wonderful way to acknowledge the reality of, of innovation. Yeah, it really resonant. I can think back to so many times in my career, the last 20 years, where we've made the same mistakes time and time again, because someone just hasn't spoken up. Yes, actually. exactly. So I've, got, exactly. I've really got experience of that. Seems so, you know, sometimes it seems crazy. You know, rationally, wouldn't people speak up with what they know? Well, yeah, rationally, but we're not rational creatures. You know, we're we're emotional creatures. We're fear-based creatures. We want to be, we want to be liked. We want to be respected, and that drive will overwhelm us and get in the way of just candor. I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball in, if I may, because. Yes. Just because it's an interesting question, I see it discussed a lot on social media and even in my own organization. Is, do you think, as Amy Edmondson, there is a difference between leadership and management? It's the old discussion. Yes. I'm just putting you on the spot. I'm just wondering, do you see a tangible difference in the workplace or not, just out of interest? I do. And, and yet you have to recognize this is definitional. Yeah. This, isn't, this isn't phenomenological. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, so definitionally, uh, definitionally, management is the art of getting work done through others. And so I have a, if I'm a manager, I have a role to play. I need to be clear about what needs to be done. I need to give feedback. I need to ensure that the trains are running on time. That's very important work. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, these two functions are not mutually exclusive nor are they at odds, uh, they're just different. But leadership, I would like to argue, is the art of, well, it's, it's, it's the art of harnessing others' efforts to achieve something none of us could achieve alone, right? So it's the art of harnessing. And to harness your efforts, I also have taken on the responsibility to motivate, to inspire, and indeed to develop. So if management is the art of getting work done through people, 
Leadership is then the art of getting people developed at work, you know, through work. And, and along the way, we'll get, we'll get great things done. But I'm, my primary goal as a leader is to inspire, to engage, and to develop. That's lovely. Thank you for that. That's a really, really, really clear answer, which is very impressive because it's one of those things that goes round and round in the mill. And I've, I've always known, for me, it's always been clear in line with what you've said, but not with that much clarity. And I think there's a lot of people talk about them being at odds. And I think that's a really important message. Well, they're at odds. And like, I mean, if you think about those two definitions, uh, a person could be a great you know, manager in the sense of helping ensure that the, the work is getting done in, you know, in high quality timely ways um, while also recognizing and being willing to take on the responsibility of developing people and inspiring people and aspiring to create a, you know a sort of a better world than we have oh lovely how, how important for you as part of your work um, is inclusion there's a lot of talk around inclusion at the moment rightly I feel but yes. is, that, is that a key part of, of the work that you do do you see that showing up you know, historically, it wasn't. It wasn't on my radar. That was sort of a separate field of inquiry. You know, the, the, the field of diversity and inclusion was over there. And there's certainly people with great expertise, and it wasn't my expertise. But increasingly, I'm finding that um, not only um, am I, but I have to be quite interested in this topic. And it's, of course, tightly related, because um, inclusion literally means I am included, I feel included, I feel that my voice matters. And if that isn't the definition of psychological safety, I don't know what is. You know, my voice matters, my voice is welcome, my voice is valued. That doesn't mean I get to tell everybody what to do or that I'm always right, God no, right? But it does mean that I have a right and even an obligation to offer my voice, to offer what I have. And, and that won't happen, right? You can, you can deliberately, you can go out of your way to hire for diversity, but diversity won't spontaneously translate into inclusion. I can, I can look around and the workforce looks quite diverse and the people who really have a voice are a particular group, let's say. And so we've got to, we've got to work hard to make sure that diversity is manifested as inclusion. And to me, that's what psychological safety is all about. Oh, interesting. Just out of interest, you, 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 I don't think I need to ask you my question around if psychological safety is linked to vulnerability. Um, Amy, I think it seems to be quite clear that, that there's a correlation there. Yes. Um, what, what, what would, if you were going to define to someone else that didn't understand or you were trying to explain to someone what vulnerability meant to you, if you had to define it, what, what does it mean to you personally if you're just going to, to, to tell somebody else that maybe hadn't heard the term before? Vulnerability means recognizing and then being okay with the fact that I could get hurt. It's from the Latin, vulnerable, you know, wound. Um, and, and, and we're all vulnerable all the time. There's so many physically, emotionally, but especially we're talking about emotional vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, and what is very psychologically natural to do is to try to, we don't like that feeling of being at risk for, for being hurt. So we try to keep it at bay. We, we keep ourselves safe. You know, we, we, we privilege self-protection over self-expression. Um, I, I, I worked uh, for a wonderful man named Larry Wilson who called this the difference between 
playing to win and playing not to lose, right? Play, you know, self-protection is playing not to lose. And it, it's not visible to the outside. If I am engaging in self-protection, you may not be able to tell, right? Because I'm, you don't know that when I'm speaking up and saying what I say, that it's actually the safest version of what I have to say, that I'm holding back my, my real self or my, my worries or my concerns or my hopes and my dreams. I'm not sharing those with you. And you can't tell, you know, the act of non-sharing is not visible. So, um, so vulnerability is, you know, really so much about a willingness to accept the reality of the fact that we could in fact get hurt by others at any given time and to be okay with that to, to sort of be able to tell yourself yes i might feel hurt and that's not going to kill me right i'll be i'll be okay i can't expect to be just feeling you know absolutely safe and bulletproof all the time or I won't really be engaged in life. Oh, it really speaks to me personally um, on my own journey, to be honest, because there's something about leaning in, isn't there? There's just something about just going first, almost yeah. to some extent. If you go first, you're vulnerable, right? If you speak up first, you know, unless you're 99% convinced that what you have to say is going to make everybody think you're a hero, um, then by speaking, you are vulnerable and going first is nearly always um, an act of vulnerability or of accepting vulnerability. Hmm. What was just out of interest, if you're going to take two or three of the key themes from writing the book that you yeah. did, yeah. what, what maybe surprised you or inspired you the most following writing that book that maybe you didn't see as you went into the process? Yes. Well, it's um, a hard one because, you know, well, when did, so I went, if you, when I went into the process of saying, okay, I'm going to write this book, I didn't know how, right? I mean, I didn't know what it would look like or how to structure it. And, you know, I was trying to think of all the different points that needed to be made. And then those could potentially be chapters. And I was trying to list those and, and it just seemed a little bit, the way I was thinking about it, it seemed a little bit dry and the, the interconnections between, you know, when you try to say, organize things by silo, you know, a chapter is a silo, it was sort of like, but wait, if I talk about failure over here, that's so closely related to talking about innovation over here, like it doesn't work, you can't really separate it. And so what, what I um, suddenly, you know, I had this sort of sudden recognition that what really matters are the stories, you know, stories of individuals, stories of companies. And and then, of course, it was so um, obvious to recognize that there are good stories and bad stories. And I realized that that could be the core of the book, you know, the good stories and the bad stories. And, and of course, the, ba the, the bad stories are the stories where fear-based workplaces led to bad outcomes. And those I divide into two types, right? So the one type of bad outcome are business failures, you know, um, marketplace failures, scandals that, sh that didn't have to happen, right? That were absolutely preventable had people felt safe to speak up. Um, the other kind are human safety failures, you know, people getting harmed physically or, or um, even in some cases in high risk settings, even killed. And, and um, so I separate, you know, the, the sort of where fear-based workplaces can create business risk and human safety risk. And then stories where deliberate 
efforts to create psychologically safe environments um, led to lead to and support business uh, successes as well as human safety successes. Okay. What I love about your work, honestly, is just the humanity of it all. You know, we're oh. not we're not talking about how do you try and strategize the heck out of something or design a structure around something. I'm really sensing it's just about how do you help someone really be themselves more. Absolutely. Is that a fair comment? Would you say? Oh, it's a fair comment. And in fact, this really all stemmed from my recognition early in my, very early in my working career, working life, that, well, you know, it's a blinding flash of the obvious. Most of us spend more of our waking hours at work than anywhere else. And that's a pretty, you know, it's an obvious point, but if then that meant that the workplace is not a place where I feel recognized or freed up to really contribute what I have to contribute, that's somewhere between a tragedy and a waste. And so I kind of got interested, I'm interested in people, you know, and what does it take for people, you know, to, 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 um, feel and make the feel feel ennobled by and able to make the contributions they can make. And a lot of that has to do with our relationships with each other. And, you know, what kind of place is this when I show up at work in the morning or in the evening, um, who's there, you know, colleagues, friends, or, you know, enemies and, you know, potential threats. Yeah. You, um, you re referenced quite early in your book, um, another person that I'm a, Big fan of, and that's Nilifa Merchant. You referenced part, one of her quotes. I've read her book, Onlyness, which was very, very impressive as well. Is, is, is Nilifa someone you have some interactions with? Yes, I've met her at the, yeah. at the Thinkers 50 conference in London that happens every other year, and, uh, um, and, and she's delightful. And, and the story I tell is about you know, her, own, her own honesty. Talk about vulnerability, her own honesty in describing how early in her career she was holding back all the time. She wasn't, she wasn't raised sharing ideas unless they were, you know, she was a hundred percent sure they were going to be well received by higher ups and, and what a waste that was. Mm. Lovely. Well, I'm really conscious of time. Again, I could keep you all day, but I'm not going to do that. I'll get in trouble. <laughs> so as we wrap up, um, I love in your book as well, you state that anyone can help create a psychologically safe environment. Would you mm. mind just expanding on that a little bit as we start to wrap up? What, what, what does that mean? I think it's such an important point because most, when people start to learn about this work, one of the first things they think is, okay, this is great, but I'm not the boss or I'm not the CEO. And it is true that bosses and, you know, senior executives have an outsized role in shaping the culture of the organization. And the fact is wherever you work and with, whomever you work, you can make a small difference by simply reaching out and asking a person, another person, a colleague, a subordinate, a, a, a thoughtful question about what they're thinking, what they're seeing. You create a kind of micro moment of psychological safety where they're being listened to because you've asked, I, I am interested Gary, in what you're thinking. And so then you say something and in that moment, and then I listen. So, you know, these are, this is just a tiny, small act, but you start adding those up, you know, day in and day out in the workplace, it becomes clear that any one of us can just make our colleagues sense of feeling respected and um, engaged 
a tiny bit better. And that adds up. It's so focus, it's so natural to focus on what they up above us are not doing. And in fact, a far more productive and healthy focus is what can I do? And it might not be a whole lot, but it can be enough. So asking questions of others, um, being willing to say um, things like, I, I, I'm sorry, or I miss that, or I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so sad that happened to you. Just the small little things that lead other people to feel they've been seen, right? You know, seen as a human being and appreciated as a human being. Um, it just goes, I think it goes a long way. Oh, it's, it's lovely. I, I love one of the, the notes I took from your book as well is some of the, the almost the power questions that you can use, such as I don't know. It's yeah. one of the safest yeah. questions that open up that safety, which I find right. amazing. And people, people don't want to say I don't know because they think it'll make them look stupid, when in fact it actually makes them look smart. Because in, in today's world with you know, hundreds, of, hundreds of areas of expertise, um, nobody knows everything clearly. So when you say I don't know, you look you look confident and self-assured, not weak and ignorant. Oh, it's amazing. So my last question before we get how people can contact you, Amy. Yes. Who or what is inspiring you the most right now? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Oh, um, you know, it, it's, just, it's just hard. I, what came to mind, and now we're after our midterm election, so... I hope this won't sound like a, a kind of a, a, a no longer relevant thought, but I'm enormously inspired by Beto O'Rourke. Um, I'm inspired by his optimism. He was um, a congressman in El Paso, Texas, running for the, uh, the senator uh, position. And um, he's thoughtful and passionate and optimistic. And can he is an amazing educator and he's helping, you know, he, he, he's, he can help people on both sides of an issue kind of understand each other. And that's what's ma what really matters in our, our quite volatile world. So I'm so impressed by that young man, um, by his thoughtfulness, by his wisdom, and by his, by his uh, compassion and energy. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Appreciate it. How can people reach out to you if they, if they want to find out more about the book or maybe reach out to you directly? What's the best way to reach you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, Amy Edmondson, Amy C. Edmondson. Uh, you can go to the Harvard Business School, hbs.edu website and find any faculty member, including me. And there you'll see on my faculty page, other things I've written. Um, and please uh, read the book. It's there in, uh, you know, on Amazon or wherever you like to get your books. Um, and uh, it comes out uh, November 20th, which is tomorrow. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you. You've been an absolute joy. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thanks, Amy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>
what I have to contribute to the shared enterprise, i.e. can I speak up, can I offer my ideas, and can I raise my hand when I'm not sure what to do? I think it's just such a beautiful, succinct summary of what bringing full self can look like. Because if you unpick each area of that, there's definitely different factors within organizational politics, within our own mindset that can actually stop ourselves from bringing our whole self, even if the environment within which we work is conducive. Sometimes we actually get in our own way. And I think there's just so much to unpick within that particular version or interpretation of bringing whole self from Amy. Really, really enjoyed hearing that. Something else I wanted to reflect on is Amy spoke about this VUCA world that um, that the term that is, is spoken about quite a lot. And what she spoke about was that if you're not vulnerable or indeed if you're not willing to be vulnerable, then you're at risk anyway. You know, we're all vulnerable. But the question is, and I love this point, is are we willing to own that vulnerability? And I think there's so much in this. We look at mindset. We look at the work by Carol Dweck. You know, for me, I think this has been a real realization for me, actually, is that if, you know, instead of seeing vulnerability as this weakness, as something to be afraid of because we are at risk of being hurt or being damaged in some way, in terms of actually flipping that and looking at it from the point of view is how much do we actually want to own that vulnerability? Because we all come from an innate state of being vulnerable to some extent. We all come from an innate state of being well um, from, to some extent. But this, this, this point around actually, are we going to own our vulnerability or be at the behest of somebody else? I think is just so, so strong and so powerful and actually really empowering for me personally. I think the last thing I wanted just to wrap up as, as one of my other takeaways is that and I just want to quote Amy here that somewhere between a travesty and a waste, if we do not allow people to be recognized or if they are unable to, to feel safe, to speak up and to, to contribute. So I just want to wrap up here and just say for any leaders that may be listening for anybody that is in a, a role of influence anywhere in society within, within their own relationship, within the world of work, just remember that point, you know, to not allow people to, bring their whole self to not allow people to ask questions to challenge the status quo to not let people be recognized for the voice that they have for something that maybe only they can see just to to quote Nilla for merchant and her book holiness you know we do all, all have this unique view of the world that only we can see and i think the more we recognize that the more safe we make it for people to bring those individual versions the, the better inclusion will be the, the, the more aware people will become and the more productive and the more enjoyable the world of work will be for everybody. So just so, so much in this for me. And I just thank Amy again for sparing the time to, uh, to speak with me today on this podcast. If any of this resonates for you, um, as you know, there is um, a business called the a listening organization that I've recently set up, which is a human centered organizational design model to help us truly go back to basics and build those organizations around trust, around curiosity, around purpose and values, around listening, and around inclusion. So, you know, do reach out to me should you wish to have a conversation about any of those areas. But in the meantime, please do connect with you know, Amy, do follow up on her work, do buy her book, The Fearless Organization. It's a really, really good book. And I look forward to seeing you again on the next podcast. All the very best for now and uh, see you very soon.